welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. The Hong Kong Maritime Museum is closed at the moment until April, but before it closed, I joined diving enthusiast Sandy McAllister on Pier 8 at the museum to have a look at his extraordinary collection of brass and copper diving helmets. So these helmets, which weigh around 60 pounds each, were used for standard diving, where a diver would be lowered or climbed down a ladder, off a boat and into the sea, wearing a big canvas waterproof suit and this heavy metal helmet with a metal breastplate called a corselet on their shoulders. A pipe would pump air into the back of the helmet and the divers' lives would be wholly dependent on their team on the boat on the surface, monitoring them and pumping air correctly. Mistakes could lead to disaster. Sandy McAllister is a retired police officer who came to Hong Kong in 1975. As he tells me in the programme, he fell in love with diving at the age of four and it's been a lifelong love affair. He's collected helmets that have been used on standard diving suits throughout Asia and across the world. The divers would have glass windows in the helmet to search for abalone, pearls, sponge or for marine salvage, civil engineering and construction. Sandy's collection includes items dating back to the early 1900s. Scuba diving would only be invented in the 1940s. Standard diving, so when the diver wears the heavy helmet and boots and the suit and is lowered to the seafloor, still exists today. But of course, the equipment is much more modern. I stumbled upon the first helmet in, in a little metal shop in Wellington, New Zealand, and that was in 1973. And I'd always had a fascination with helmets, and I bought this helmet for 650 Hong Kong dollars. It turns out it was a C.B. Gorman 1850 helmet, which is just a wonderful, wonderful helmet, and so historic. So then I, when I got to Asia in 75, I just used to hunt around Asia and Hong Kong for helmets. And over the years, I've bought probably in the hundreds, but I used to sell off a lot and just keep one of each kind. So this collection is a collection of, of Asian helmets. And the Historic Diving Society in the States several years ago thought it could be one of the best in the world, if not the best. And the fascinating thing is with these, they that the one helmet in the front here, this was the C.B. Gorman helmet, which was called the Admiralty Six-Bolt Helmet. This was manufactured about 1900, and they became the Royal Navy helmets. And they went all over the world and, of course, all around Asia. And you'll see that the Asian helmets, Japanese, Korean, Chinese, are all kind of miniature copies of slightly made smaller, slightly adapted for the Asian diver, but all copies of the Admiralty helmet generally. Because I don't, you know, when I'm looking at these, so a lot of these date largely from the late 19th century, early 1900s. Yes, well, the Asian ones, we've got Japanese, Korean, Chinese here, and this collection, a lot of them are from the 30s, 40s, and of course you've got China right up to the present day is, is one of the few places which still manufacture a helmet called the TF-12, and it's manufactured in Shanghai. The concept of these large and heavy diving helmets possibly goes back to the 1400s and before. A German military engineer, Konrad Kaiser, describes them in a book on military technology in 1405. English inventor John Lethbridge built the first enclosed diving system to aid in salvage work. That was in the early 1700s. He tested it out in his garden pond. If you look at reconstructed versions of what he created, it looks like a pressure-proof, 
air-filled wooden barrel with two watertight enclosed sleeves and a glass viewing hole. John Lethbridge became quite rich using this apparatus to go and salvage old shipwrecks, including Spanish galleons, so he was able to bring up weaponry and silver. Another English inventor around the same time created a leather-covered diving suit with a helmet, with a window and a system of breathing tubes, and he demonstrated his suit in the River Thames. Now, I mean, you were an avid diver, you possibly still are. In terms of these helmets, I mean, they look incredibly heavy. So what was the idea behind them? Well, yes, you know, it's the, this is what makes them so interesting. Man's always been trying to be below the water and have mobility. And so way back in 1788, a guy called Smeaton found a way of pumping air down, and that was a major breakthrough. And then in 1828, the Dean brothers invented a helmet which sat on your shoulders but had no attachment, so the air flowed out from underneath the helmet. But you couldn't bend over or fill with water, so you walked around with this, this structure on your shoulders. And then in 1837, Augustus Seabee invented a way of, of sealing a canvas suit, sealing it to a corselet, and then the bonnet fitted on to that. And they had remarkable little innovations that he did an interrupted thread, so you could put the bonnet on the corselet and turn it an eighth and it would lock. And that was a major thing. And so You could put the bonnet on there? Well, so the corselet fitted onto the suit. What's the corselet? That's the, the bit this, that goes over piece, your shoulder. It's two-piece, yeah. actually three-piece. Face glass, bonnet, which is the helmet, and the corselet, which goes onto the shoulders, and the suit fits into here. And what's it made of? What sort of metal? Oh, this is, this is copper and brass. So on the surface you were, you were heavy, but the, because it was an enclosed system... When you had the air pumped in, the air went through the whole system, through your body and through the, through the suit. So have you worn one? No, no, look, I've, I've got to confess, um, <laughs> I've done a lot of diving, and I never have, but uh, it's on the bucket list, and you can go to places and pay these days and still have the standard diving experience. So yeah, I'm, I'm ashamed of that, but, uh, <laughs> no, but you've got um, I would love to. <laughs> and, you know, they just it was just the era of where a man was locked in to this, this apparatus and you were totally dependent on people on the surface to pump air at the same pressure as you descended. And you were trying to equalise your, your airs at the time, so a lot of them would push their nose onto the face mask or onto the collar of their suit or yawn or, or um, swallow hard and so they'd have to keep up the decompression. They had to talk to the surface in a language using pulls and tugs with their lifeline and their, their air hose. You'd have a man whose head had been in these things for thousands and thousands of hours so they, they seemed to absorb all the, the worries, the panic, the the fears, the, the dreams, everything of a man. And so they, they all take on a, a personality. They've all got little bits of dings and dents and repair. They've all got a story, and, and they're just the most incredible things to live with and, and to be around. So, so we're yeah. looking at about oh, uh, 5, 10, 15, about 19 of these diving helmets yes, here. 25, yeah. Yes. And uh, some, yeah. some more downstairs, oh, I think. <laughs> How big is your collection then? Oh, no, these days it's about 25, 20, 26 or 27. I'd like to have one of, of each type, each style and each manufacturer. So these are Asian diving helmets? Yes, all, all Asian, except for the CB in the middle. So that's, that's generally where they evolved from, yes. Right.
and it's called the... C.B. Gorman. Right, and that was a, manu a manufacturer of diving helmets. The star of the industry, the, the first helmet and been wonderful helmets. And then there was Heinke and Morse and, and a lot of others, but C.B. Was the, was the father of all helmets. German-born British engineer Augustus Sieber worked off a design by another engineer, George Edwards, coming up with his own design of the standard diving helmet, which moved the technology forward and was a model built on in subsequent decades. But the game-changer was a valve in the helmet that meant the helmet didn't flood no matter how the diver moved. His improved design revolutionised underwater salvage and civil engineering, naval and commercial diving. An interesting point, the waterproof suits were made by a certain Charles McIntosh. What would one of these weigh? It could be uh, 60 pounds. So you have to have somebody 60, else placing pounds. it over your shoulders? Oh, absolutely. You, ne you needed a tender, so yes. you, you got dressed. And, and those people used to have to keep pumping the air at the same pressure. And there's incredible stories of, of divers when they fell off a ledge and suddenly dropped. Then they would get what was called the squeeze and their whole bodies could be squashed into the helmet. It's, it's just where man, the diver is very vulnerable and he's totally dependent on, on those people upstairs. And, and downstairs in the, in the store, I've got an old pump, an Asian pump. It's like a seesaw type of pump. So these, as you say, you, so you start off in 1973. Mm. Did they come up at auction? Did no, you see them no, in antique no, no, no. shops? I used to travel and had different people who would, would find them for me and keep them for me. And a few I bought. One was found off Lantau Island, or Lama Island, I think, under the water, um, a Chinese helmet. Um, these two, for instance, I found in, in a village, Samunjai, up by Taipogao. And I bought these from old divers, and they never used tables in those days, decompression tables. And I remember they were quite bent and had, you know, paralyzed uh, from the bends and so they would dive for pleasure or they would dive oh, no, all working no, no no none of these are pleasure so these have all been sponge divers pearl divers abalone divers and and construction and and work so these the two top ones you're saying yeah. are hong kong ones yeah hong kong ones but, but they're japanese that's a yokohama and it's got a flat across the corslet so and three big windows for finding sponge but it's ended up in hong kong and an old local diver used it for his business for construction and, and so um, that you just got a phone call there's one up in this no, village no, and... i um someone told me and i used to wander through the village and look out the back that was buried under um under some rubble and things out the back there and uh, it's, it's just the most beautiful old helmet this one and this is nippon sensi and it's you know from pre-1930 and look there's been no lugs and so it's been used a chisel to to fasten the faceplate and i mean just it's just beautiful old things you know so you uh, had a variety of ways of hearing about these or yes and, and i just always kept an eye out and it's interesting there's in the old days there were fakes um and they were polished and you bought them from taiwan and then people switched on <laughs> caught on to the kind of value and the interest in these and so you started getting really good fakes that look just like this beaten up and old and repaired from India it's amazing looking at these I mean that takes a certain amount of courage I would feel a bit worried about putting something like this on and going underwater but I suppose if it was a choice between 
being able to get under and, and you just trust your oh, team. When you, and you can't just take it off and swim away. You were strapped into it and sealed into it and locked into it and, and you, you had to stay there. And that's why that's so incredible. There's lovely little features on the, the Japanese ones. So this is a CV and this little lever in the front is a spitcock. And now the Japanese ones, they like to copy that. And it did what? Well, you had no way of cleaning the inside of your glass. So you could draw a little bit of seawater, shoot it into your mouth and then spit it over the face light or the face glass to, to kind of clear it. All types of things like that. And you see inside there's a little valve like a little mushroom inside the Seabian. That's for banging your cheek against and you can dump that build up if you've got too much air because you can expand very quickly and if you tilt or you lay down you would shoot up to the surface. So you had to control the amount of air inside your helmet and inside your suit. And there's a little valve inside that you can knock with your cheek and, and dump air quickly. And it's interesting to see that there's, there's one inside the CB from the 1900s and the, the rest of them have all copied that and it's exactly the same in all the helmets, the, the little kind of mushroom on a, on a stick. So they were copying one another's technology. Yes, and, and they've adapted them, you see. The, there's some of the little Korean ones where actually females used to wear them for, for abalone and things um, that make this, the part of the corselet a little bit narrower and set the bonnet forward a little bit so if you're looking down all the time it's far more comfortable. So this is more adapted for a woman? Yeah, or a male sponge diver or abalone diver but they were adapted for, for females. So they would go down, so describe, so if somebody's going down for sponge or abalone and so they're actually working, um, yes, so th yes. these were, these are, as I say, I, I have in my head these days diving for leisure, but of course these are working. No, these are totally working. So they're sent down from the boat yep. on a rope, yep. lowered down. Yep, they're lowered down. You've got an air hose which comes down behind you and up the front and back onto the back of the helmet and you've got a lifeline and you descend either sliding down a rope or if it's shallow you can go down a ladder. As you go down you can communicate with pulls or bells like little tugs and so there's like a language you can talk to your tender. You need more air, you need more line, you need to slack, you, you're going to come up, you lift the bottom, whatever. And then you, you work away doing what you've got to do and they've got to keep pumping and that's very very important and they've got to keep pumping at the same pressure as oh, you are there's a lot of physics to it isn't oh it? there's a lot of physics to it and and of course then you have the decompression side but those tables only came about in 1908 and refined in 1955 but many of these asian divers never used decompression tables so a lot was stricken with the illness of bends. Nitrogen build up in the blood and then the nitrogen comes out too quickly um, when you ascend. So what happens when you get the bends? Oh, the blood literally bubbles and of course it can get stuck in, in different places. Uh, so that's increased nitrogen? Well, as you descend, your body and blood is absorbing nitrogen and it's like taking a, a Coca-Cola bottle and taking the top off quickly as opposed to taking it off very slowly and you just get a bubble, uh, bubbles forming in your blood. So that can lead to paralysis and a lot of different things. But So a lot of these early divers, particularly the ones you know, going down for sponge, going down for abalone, 
were in danger of, of... Oh, a lot of them were. I mean, if it wasn't too deep, it's not a problem, but um, those who did anything at depth, it was a big problem. And there's the most extraordinary book called The, the White Divers of Broome. Broome was a centre in Australia for um, Mother of Pearl, and uh, it's a whole book on that, on, on the comparison with some Navy divers and the Korean and Japanese divers, and it's remarkable. And the Asian divers didn't use tables and were far more productive and could get a lot more. And the poor British divers who stuck by the tables but then had to, by sticking to the tables, they couldn't compete. And so they started not to stick to the tables and there was disastrous consequences. So the diver would be dressed in this heavy diving gear, including boots and gloves with the brass and copper helmet and corselet lowered onto his head and shoulders. A pipe feeding into the back of the helmet would pump the air from a team on shore or on a boat at the surface. The suit was made of waterproof canvas. In later years, some of these diving suits were equipped with a diver's telephone so that the diver could communicate with those on the surface. The diver would have a knife and weights on the diver's back, chest and shoes so that work could be carried out on the sea bottom. Standard diving helmets can be used up to 600 feet in depth and the full standard diving suits can weigh up to 190 pounds. They're still used in some parts of the world, but the helmets these days are often made of steel. So when you've been collecting these, as you say, I mean, I was expecting you to say, oh yeah, you know, they come up at auction or this, this is how you built your collection. But it, it, I like this fact that you sometimes just discovered them or yes, heard many, about many, many them. Many times I discovered or, or someone would say, oh, I know I saw one the other day and I'd follow up on that. And in places like Korea, I had people who were Did in you the, ship it back? How did you get yes, it back? Yes, I was, I was <laughs> always shipping, I was always shipping. And I used to sell a lot to um, North Sea divers. I mean, anybody who, who dives professionally loves to own a helmet. Um, so I used to ship them to the UK and Edinburgh and places and, and they were sought after by the North Sea people. Now, I had people in Japan and Korea that look out for them and when he'd accrued a few I'd go over and then crate them all up and send them back here. <laughs> My home was, was, uh, was always full of these things. So. Is Mrs. McAllister really tolerant? Yeah, well she wishes I'd collect stamps but um, <laughs> we lived with her for a long time. <laughs> so down here is a pair of... Well, you've got sort of boots, large, big, sandy boots, and on the end of those, <laughs> I'm thinking of the workman Doc Martens, you know, the steel yes, tip boots, yes, but yes, these are yeah. massive pieces of metal on the toe area. Yes, they are. Those ones are particularly, they're, they're actually US boots, but found in Asia. I mean, you used to get different things found all over the world. I mean, I see some of these Korean helmets found in Saudi Arabia, places like this where different construction teams have worked and left things behind. But downstairs in the store, there's some classical British Royal Navy boots. But the interesting thing is a lot of these great big boots were too heavy for the Asian divers. So they used to modify it and make like little metal slippers and things and I always find that fascinating and there's some of those downstairs but they come in all, all sizes and it's really up to the diver what felt good on his feet and, and it's quite exhausting even though you're underwater working all day and, and shoes that weigh uh, 40 pounds each you know. You were saying that they were used you know not only to to get sponge to get abalone so 
foodstuffs or seafood stuffs in a way. Oh, um, yes, but in, in they were used construct construction work, building the piers in Hong Kong, clearing things, all the underwater work and construction. So same for now, for the third runway, or no, that, well, these days these have all been replaced with, with fiberglass, lightweight helmets, and you don't need the canvas suit, and you're more mobile, and it's lighter, and it's easier, and it's better. So no, the days of these have all gone. Although there are some places in China where they still use them. And there's still some places in, in um, Korea where they still use them, but generally there's a much easier way to dive now. These were used from the 1840s right through to the, really, to the 80s, which is incredible, really. Yes, so well over a century, as you say. Yes, yes. So the early piers, though, so probably Blake's Pier and a few of the others. Yeah, well, they'll be made by a standard diver. So how do you mean? They're, they're underwater... Well, they're just working underwater construction, so you're lining things up, you're overseeing the cement, you're clearing, you're digging, you're... Um, I've never really thought about it. Metal work, pipelines, cables, everything was done. There's so much done underwater, and there always has been in Hong Kong. And up so you have whole teams of guys wearing these? Yeah, that have boats and that have specialists. There's, a, there's such a lovely story. Um, I knew a diver who was British and worked here and did standard diving, and he tells a wonderful story about a, quite a legend, and I've, I've forgotten his name, Lam or Lao, an old, old diver, and his wife was as tender, and he used to be half asleep, and she kitted him out and tied everything up and bolted it down. And when, when the faceplate went in and she was ready, he'd be half asleep, and she'd hit him over the head with a biscuit and, uh, uh, <laughs> to, um, to get him onto the ladder, you know. It's a wonderful part of Hong Kong history. Yeah, as I say, with the construction, I've honestly never really thought how... How those oh, yeah, every, items would be constructed. Everything you see around the water, around the coast, um, was done underwater. Part of it was done underwater. But that's painstaking. Yes, it is. It's, it's, it's wonderful. The other kind of big advance was getting communications, whereas you're limited with your, with your pulls and your bells using a rope. So some of these have communication ports in the back of them. That was a huge thing, so they could talk to the surface. They've all got a story, and if you look at this little Kim um, on downstairs here on the um, on the bottom, I mean the number of bangs and bruises and repairs on that, and, and I mean that would be from probably the late 1930s. I mean just an extraordinary past, and I mean even looking at at this lovely old Kim here, then you've got the the worn pieces on the brails, these brass strips which hold the suit onto the corselet. You can see these are worn down, and these are worn down from the ropes which hold the weights in front of them. So that's, you know, thousands and thousands of hours of a piece of rope wearing against. The, and it's, it's, just, uh, it's just so beautiful. And if you rub a little bit of oil over these, all the colours come up. Were you ever a working diver? Well, in New Zealand, I was a New Zealand police diver. There I was trained by the New Zealand Navy in diving. Now, I know that in, uh, you know, when I look at any sort of, maybe it's just watching telly, but, you know, divers sure. are, well, or news, really, divers are often used here if there's been some sort of ferry disaster, or, yes, you know, yes, I also yes. think of it in terms of bodies often, yeah, or yeah. post a murder if they're, if yeah. they're looking. But 
how were you used for diving with the police? In New Zealand, it was it was it was searching and searching for bodies or property um, under the water. And it's uh, the thing with police diving; it's always in the worst conditions and the blackest conditions. So a lot of it's done by feel. And I, I recently went back to a reunion, and now they've got the most remarkable equipment like radar, where they can find bodies under the water without having to crawl along the bottom with your fingers. You know. They've got fantastic equipment how they can locate bodies under the water. In his research, Sandy McAllister found out about the first salvage operation using divers in Hong Kong. You know, this is the most remarkable thing. In 1870, there was a ship and it came in through Lei Moon, hit a rock and then sank exactly opposite where we are now in the Hong Hong Bight. It had a cargo of denim, um, which was very expensive and was needed for the whole of Hong Kong, and they didn't know how to get it back. So denim like denim jeans? Denim, yes, denim cloth. And they brought down a salvage team from Shanghai, and you can see this remarkable photo of Edward Norton in 1870 in Hong Kong with this incredible bunch of men, which you can't <laughs> identify. They'd, they could be um, Italian or you cannot place who they are. Um, the helmet looks like an old German helmet, but it was a salvage team, and it was really the first recorded dive of standard diving, and they recovered the denim just across here. Now, the interesting thing is Edward Norton's son was Edward Felix Norton, who later became the commander of British forces here in 1940 to 41 and was acting governor. So it's... Um, well, quite it's, a connection. It's, oh, a wonderful connection of uh, Hong Kong governors and... Uh, standard diving in Hong Kong. It's, it's just the most remarkable photo. Where does that come from? It was through a friend of my daughter's father um, brought it up <laughs> once with me in New Zealand um, and I got him to send what he had and um, the more I looked, the more remarkable it was. So kind of obsessed with diving since I was about four years old and saw my first frogman in, in a tank in London at the boat show, you know. So, so when did you first dive? Oh, I started diving um, when I was about uh, 15 or 16. That, uh, up to that, that's on scuba. Up to that time, I, I'd uh, free dive just as we all did as kids with a snorkel. And where would that's in New Zealand? In New Zealand, yeah, yeah. So where would you go? Where we went every year on the beach and, and around the rocks and, and lakes and rivers and wherever I could find water, yes. <laughs> And in Hong Kong, I mean, when did you originally come to Hong Kong? Came in 1975. What I find interesting in Hong Kong, of course, is always the water quality yeah. and what you can actually see. Yeah. And I hear from divers these days that there is actually quite a bit to see again. Oh, there is. And, and the, the banning of coastal trawling is the biggest one to thank for that. Yes, and it's, it's getting quite good in the water. And the remarkable things that the government have done here with the sewage system of not discharging into the water, and it all goes uh, through these underground tunnels, and it's an incredible system. You can see the Hong Kong Harbour right in front of us. It's, the water is so much better than it's ever been. How do you feel when you're underwater? Well, underwater, that's why the helmets are interesting. You know, if you talk to people who do a lot of diving, you have a very interesting relationship with your body underwater and your mind and the, the kind of split between body and mind. And it's like you have two people. And that's why the helmets are so important, because people who wore those must have had some harrowing times and must have had some extraordinary mental and body experiences. And enormous trust. 
enormous trust, you know, totally reliant on, on you guys upstairs and that they can't break for a cigarette or stop pumping. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you, um, there's so many things that can go wrong and you've got to be so aware. And they, they were quite remarkable, the men who did it. And many of them did it well into their very old age. My thanks to Sandy McAllister there, talking about his wonderful collection of copper and brass standard diving helmets. The Hong Kong Maritime Museum is due to reopen next April, so hopefully you can see this collection at that time. But I've also put some photographs of it on my Hong Kong Heritage Facebook page, so do take a look at those. Well, I have to say, I'm full of admiration for the divers that have used the standard diving helmets and suits over the decades. What courage! And I was particularly impressed when thinking about all the engineering and construction that has gone on underwater. My only diving experiences have been strictly leisure. When I went to the Gili Islands off Lombok in Indonesia about 20 years ago, and while I was diving, a turtle rose and swam right over my head, which is one of those treasured moments. I may give it another go, inspired by Sandy's stories. I was never able to go further than five to 10 meters in depth, because it was too uncomfortable, as despite swallowing, I couldn't regulate the pressure in my ears by equalising them. So, as my diving friend said, conquer your ears, Annie, conquer your ears. Thanks for listening, and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>